Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I'm sitting down today with my friend and fellow Bitcoin author, Brandon Quidham. Brandon is the head of comms at Swan Bitcoin. And as I mentioned, also a very well-known author, specifically in this, at this juncture of kind of like Bitcoin meets complexity meets biology. Um, you've written some good stuff. And today we're gonna to be talking about your latest piece, Bitcoin is a pioneer species. So Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Robert. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. We've got a long history and had a lot of good chats, so I'm excited to, to record one today. Yeah, man, it's great to see you again. Um, I still reflect back on our early conversations. I think we were in Erewhon in Los Angeles. You visited at one point. It was the first time we met. And uh, yeah, we just immediately hit it off going down all these rabbit holes related to Bitcoin. That was in 2017, right? Uh, I think it was 2018. Or 2018. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mind if I tell an embarrassing story about that? Please. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going out to LA. I live in Minneapolis and I just tweeted the standard, hey, Twitter, I'm going to LA. What Bitcoiners want to meet up? And this uh, relatively unknown meathead DM'd me named uh, Robert. And he said he wanted to, he read my recent mycelium piece and he wanted to get together. I'm like, all right, who is this guy? Don't know who he is. Let's get together. Um, okay. We go to the grocery store. We have some smoothies and it turns into a like three, four hour conversation that completely blew my mind. And I was like, wow, is that brother from another mother? What just happened? <laughs> and yeah, a year later or something like that. I mean, Breed loves a household name at this point. So, <laughs> a lot uh, low on that one. <laughs> yeah, and we were looking very LA, I think, with our matching man buns in the super overpriced grocery store. Um, exactly. <laughs> Broing out on a Bitcoin conversation. So, that was great. Exactly. Good times. <laughs> um, well, we're so. On this topic of Bitcoin as a pioneer species, um, you know, you you really hit the map, I guess, originally with mycelium of money, and I love, I just love thinking about Bitcoin through a biological lens because almost like economics, where it seems like biology is another science that we're very young in, which is we're barely starting to understand biology at a really deep level, kind of like we're just starting to starting to realize that Keynesian economics is BS, right? And we're getting back to the roots of, of Austrian economics, which is another young science. You know, we, we only realized value is subjective less than 200 years ago. Um, so where, I guess my question would be, where is the proper place to start in exploring Bitcoin as a pioneer species? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think just to touch on biology really quickly, I think that's a profound point. And you don't need to look any further than our food pyramid, mm -hmm. right? It's very clear that we don't even know what's appropriate for a human to eat. Um, if you look back every 100 years for the last, let's say, 500, our scientific consensus at the time is incredibly embarrassing with what we know today. Mm -hmm. And I think it would also be pretty arrogant to assume that our current understanding of biology is complete or even accurate. And so, yeah, I think biology fits squarely in the way too complex, uh, nearly impossible for us to predict 
And so we do our best to zoom in with a microscope and we do our best to observe systems. Um, but I think we need a little bit of humility when we approach the subject in the same way that we need a little bit of humility when we approach economics, which is, as we were talking pre-show, um, is a complex system. It cannot be reduced mm -hmm. down to pretty equations and it cannot be steered. It cannot be managed with any level of accuracy. And so I think just a foundation of complexity is important, uh, right? Small changes introduced into a complex system have outsized impacts. Mm -hmm. There's constantly unintended consequences from what we seem, uh, what seemingly are simple policy decisions, mm -hmm. right? You can look through history for endless examples here. And so to start this essay, I think just knowing that I'm trying to approach Bitcoin again as a living organism, which is my favorite approach, uh, but this time it's looking at incentives, uh, specifically in the mining industry. And I think the mining part, the mining aspect of Bitcoin is now my the most interesting part. But early on in my Bitcoin journey, I sort of dismissed it as uh, a service provider, um, right, a time stamping service rather than uh, its own its own ecosystem. And mm. so, yeah, I think starting there. And the other side to frame this up is that most people now understand Bitcoin as universal global property rights, which that alone will dramatically change the world. But in this piece, I argue that uh, Bitcoin mining is sort of a incentive structure to improve our ability to harness energy. So it's kind of a forcing function to teach humans how to master energy. And if that's true, um, there couldn't be anything more important than that for our species, because energy is pretty much a prerequisite for all the good things we do, mm -hmm. right? If you're a humanitarian and you want to improve the world, uh, the single number one thing you can do is make energy more accessible or cheaper. Right. Or as Jordan Peterson recently said, make everyone wealthy. Mm -hmm. And I would say that energy is upstream of wealth. And so that's just like, just like uh, property rights. Um, I think access to energy is sort of a foundational thing, a foundational prerequisite for human flourishing. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, and I like this idea of energy as kind of the through line too between all these different domains. You know, like clearly biological systems are using energy. They're they're basically basically strategies, you know, executing in an environment trying to establish fitness, but they consume energy to do that. To, to execute and propagate the strategy. So, you know, in an economic sense, wealth, I mean, I don't want to say wealth is energy, but you can't have wealth without energy. Like energy is the number one input, the primary input to every market process at even a biological level, which clearly um, expands upward into a, a social level. So, how we relate to energy and how efficiently we harness it. I mean, that is the name of the game, right? Like in a Darwinian sense, at a, at a civilizational sense, it's like, it's the whole thing. Yeah, hundred percent. If we want to go back through history for a second, just talk about how energy fits in, right? We go, let's say 3 billion years ago to the oxygen revolution. Um, this is the first organisms that learned how to harness energy from the sun. Right. So the very first tiny little cells, cyanobacteria could photosynthesize and okay, great. They're, they turn themselves in the solar panels and convert that energy from the sun and they exhale oxygen. Right. So it starts right there. Okay, great. Oxygen now fills our atmosphere, which makes way for all complex life afterwards. So fast forward a billion years, we have the eukaryotes, complex life. Um, the leading theory, as I understand it is 
two little cells right next to each other. One cell absorbs the cell next to them with a uh, flexible membrane, endosymbiosis is that theory. And now you have two cells uh, kind of merged together and they were allowed to outcompete or they were able to outcompete. And what essentially came out of that is mitochondria, right? You absorb this formerly bacterial cell. Now it's part of all eukaryotes, the power plant of the cell, if you remember eighth grade biology. Mm-hmm. And, and there you go. So now we have the Cambrian explosion, life takes off. Um, skipping a few steps, now we have Homo sapiens, right? We learn how to use fire. We learn how to burn wood. That's biomass. We're unleashing energy trapped in that car- dense carbon stores. Again, suns, plants, wood, burn it, release energy. Mm-hmm. Um, then we're domesticating animals. That's just a, a better way to harness their energy to plow, right? Increase our carrying capacity as a species, right? Each step increase energy, increase carrying capacity. Um, okay, we get to the industrial revolution, we harness fossil fuels, our tools get even better. What does that do? Uh, we can do more with less. So we have more time for leisure, fewer people are required to produce food. Um, we get more specialized, commerce explodes, wealth explodes, what else happens? We more or less get rid of poverty relatively. Obviously we have a long way to go, mm-hmm. um, but each, ta- each step, increase carrying capacity, increase wealth. And it's all about energy every step of the way. Yeah. And the, what is it? The Kardashev scale? Is that what it's called? Or basically can quantify the sophistication of a civilization by how much energy it's harnessing. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I think we're at Kardashev zero scale right now. <laughs> and I think one, I'm not an expert here, but I think scale one is if we harness enough energy that hits our planet. From the and sun. So, yeah. 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 We're like 0.01, not even probably 0.01% on our way to, to one. Yeah. And the, you know, what's funny here is wealth has such a stigma in today's fiat culture. It's like to think of someone as wealthy. I think the traditional mindset is like they somehow someone being wealthy is like detracting from you. Like if you're not, if you're not wealthy and someone else is wealthy, it's like they've taken advantage of you somehow. When in fact, it couldn't be the opposite. It couldn't be further from the truth because it is the, the roundaboutness of our production processes, um, our interdependence, basically through trade relationships that's creating all of this wealth. And to your point, as we progressed, um, you know, in terms of how well we can harness resources and, and deploy them into trade networks, we've all become more wealthy to the point where the least wealthy person today is in some ways more wealthy than say the richest person in the world, even just a few hundred years ago in terms of access to certain medical technology or, or transportation, things like that. Um, so yeah, it's all, it's all an energy game. Yeah. And a couple of interesting points there with regards to demonizing wealth. Right. And I, I think, one thing to consider here is that humans, it's not about our absolute wealth. It's about our relative wealth, mm-hmm. right? Baked into our biology is um, what is our neighbor doing? We got to outcompete our neighbor. We got to outreduce our neighbor. And so, yeah, today we have the, the let's say the classic left-leaning uh, American barista archetype that sort of gets punched around on the internet. Um, they're wealthy, 
200 years ago, the king didn't have a fraction of their wealth, mm-hmm. and yet they're complaining from their MacBook about the wealthy people um, taking from them, right? It's kind of a funny framing. But I think to diagnose what's happening today is it's not a new story. What's happening is that our economic system is not distributing wealth uh, very fairly to the bottom half. Mm-hmm. So young people or poor people look around and they say, well, it's not working. So uh, we must blame capitalism mm-hmm. or we must blame the evil billionaires who are hoarding all the wealth and paying all the little people too little just so they can sit in a mountain of gold. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's actually just a form of scapegoating um, to your previous point. Wealth is created through trade. There was no wealth. Uh, right? Jeff Bezos employs a lot of people, built a lot of wealth and created a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And so um, there would be no wealth for him to hoard if he didn't create an insane amount of value for three decades. Right. And that seems to get missed. And okay, it's okay to have people miss the point, but where I find it risky or dangerous, or I see it coming to a head, is that it's going to continue getting worse. And then what happens? The masses are willing to um, go to great lengths and and essentially the politicians will harness that populist feeling and use it to do their bidding or use it to you know, increase marginal tax rate up to the 60 and 70% range, which is what happened in the 1930s. Same deal. Young people had the slogan of eat the rich. Young people turn to socialism. Um, Today, unironically, young people are turning to socialism again um, because they diagnosed the problem. They just don't understand it well enough. So they made hasty conclusions that just so happened to be misinformed. Yeah, it's um, very disenchanting to see it happening again. And it's it. I, I would identify it as misplaced blame right? They're blaming entrepreneurs for the wealth that's actually being confiscated from them by the state. Um, and so, you know, when you get a, a handle on economics, it's almost intuitive. It's like the, an entrepreneur can only become wealthy in an actual free market where property rights are strong by satisfying the wants of consumers, right? Like if there's something people want, people will sacrifice for it by buying it, right? They'll go to work, earn and buy the thing. Um, whereas, so a Bezos in that situation, as you described, he had to create a ton of value to become wealthy. He satisfied the wants of market actors to himself become wealthy. So that's great. We want all that all the time everywhere. What you don't want is the statist approach to wealth accumulation, where they're taxing and inflating, they're stealing from people, which is clearly very dissatisfactory. Um, but it's amazing to me that so that like people don't understand that. You know, you're describing the the stereotypical barista, left leaning person. All of the things they're complaining about are caused by the state, but they're pointing it at Jeff Bezos. And it, I think it's just an ignorance of of economic or energetic reality, even. Absolutely, and I, I think it's gonna. I think what else is another theme that's kind of merging with that is this idea that we're destroying the planet and that we need to uh, consume less. There needs to be less people. We need to stop eating meat. We need to essentially um, turn around the innovation ship and retreat. And I, you know, I just am so fundamentally against this idea. It's such a pessimistic approach. And I think humans are much more creative and much more innovative and much more willing to perform um, given a, a game that feels fair 
right? And I think humans are at their best striving for big goals, not retreating and, you know, pinching pennies, mm-hmm. right? You can either like manage your budget better and spend less, or you can go out there and produce more income and figure out what you're good at and multiply leverage your skills. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that sort of tension, it's like, are we going to be an abundant society or are we going to be a, a society of scarcity, mm-hmm. um, right? Scarcity, regulate, constrain everything, have fewer kids, uh, or abundance. Let's let's focus on doing the things that we're able to do in 10x, 100x our energy, mm-hmm. right? Um, if we look to future problems, okay, people say we're going to have wars over fresh water, okay, potentially true. Well, if we 100x our energy capacity, we can just desalinate the oceans, right? Problem solved, right? I, I think I'd rather live in that world. It's not like we don't have enough space. Um, we can be a lot smarter with what we have and and. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's an excellent point. That tech already exists, right? Desalination. And I've also, my conversation with Booth, he was making the point that carbon filtration exists too, where we can filter carbon out of the air. It is only a matter of having cheaper energy. So if we can just, you know, focus all of the human ingenuity at this problem of making energy cheaper or energy sources more economical, which that's what I think we're going to get into. Bitcoin mining is a huge step in that direction. You, you're solving one of the most upstream, if not the most upstream problem in economics, which is the, the cost of the primary input, which is energy itself. Exactly. That's like the master commodity, mm-hmm. right? Before you do anything, before you go acquire another commodity, you need energy and a lot yeah. of it. Yeah. And to Bitcoin mining, I like the phrase where um, Bitcoin mining is everything you don't understand about energy compared with everything you don't understand about Bitcoin. <laughs> and I think that sort of frames up the, the war we're seeing on Twitter. We're seeing the White House saying nonsense. Politicians uh, are saying embarrassing things. Hopefully they realize that eventually. Um, we're seeing proof of work FUD ramp up, energy FUD ramp up. And so that's kind of the purpose of this paper is to really pitch pitch energy as a net positive for humanity and pitch Bitcoin as a way to uh, help us achieve that. And then, okay, fine. Let's say Bitcoin does help us achieve energy mastery. What kind of speculations can we have about the long-term value of that, right? It's still very early. And I think I, I want to use less technical jargon and more paint the story so people can see this as a good thing, right? And there, there's so many misunderstandings about energy and that's again, misunderstanding is okay, except for in this situation, it leads to poor policy choices. Right. Right. In Germany, they got rid of all their nuclear plants. Okay. What, what's the net result? Um, some greenies got to feel good about themselves and energy price went up five to 10 X in the last decade. And 50% of their energy is reliant on Russia. Okay. So it's a horrible geopolitical strategy. Their people are suffering and it was all self-inflicted right. due to a misunderstanding of energy and the average person, or I don't know how the decision was actually made, but um, point being this stuff matters. And so humans need to understand what we're doing here and realize that nuclear is good. Uh, Wind and solar cannot save us. They're they're only supplemental energy sources because they're not consistent, right? There's all these things. And oh man, I could go forever on that. Like how about GDP per capita directly correlated to energy consumption? It's a mm. straight line, highly correlated. So mm. if, if you care about um, help raising people out of poverty, there you go, energy. It's not attacking Bitcoin for being a, a 
crypto bro tool. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most humanitarian invention in the history of time. And the left seems to not be able to grapple with that. And I guess I don't blame them. There's a long road to, to this level of understanding. <laughs> Is it? There, there seems to be a conflation with energy use and pollution like like maybe this the status mentality on this is like they think they're the same thing it's like we need to reduce energy consumption as if that means reduce pollution but they're not at all the same thing clearly is that the source of these bad ideas or like where who how is this bullshit getting stuck in our political discourse good question um i i think part what, what i observe and i don't have any confidence really in in this domain, but I observe carbon credits as our attempt to quantify the climate problem. Mm. And so then what people will say is you're, they measure Bitcoin mining in, as a carbon output, mm. right? And so I think that correlation is embedded in everyone's head. And so what they think about is every energy source wastes carbon. Mm. Um, that's the only thing I can think of, right? It has to be like reduced down carbon, bad Bitcoin mm -hmm. makes carbon. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think it's honestly at that level of discourse because you push the people who attack Bitcoin's energy stuff. And I, I don't know the percentage, but high 90%, they don't have any clue what they're talking about. Yeah. And so they're, they're just sort of repeating their ideological talking points that their tribe handed them. Um, but again, they're shooting themselves in the foot. And so, Ignorance is evil. I guess that's the outcome of that. And it's admittedly a complex enough domain that it's it's hard, right? It takes a little bit of work to actually get your head around it. What I mean, how do you go into this topic if you're trying to package it simply? Do you have like a like an intro or or some easy packaging for people to warm up to this idea of? energy consumption does not equal um, ecological cataclysm? Yeah, it's a good question. I wouldn't say I have a great talking point there. Um, I would just go on the opposite end and just say, without energy, you can't heat your house, cool your house, mm. produce food, move around, build things. And so, the, for example, um, Alex Epstein's argument, the moral case for fossil fuels Right. In the last 200 years, what did we do? Um, we got rid of almost all the climate related deaths in our species. Mm. Most of them come from inadequate heating or cooling at the wrong time of year um, and also lack of food. Right. If you want to produce food in our uh, admittedly poor way of industrial farming, mm. um, you need a lot of fertilizer and fertilizer only comes from fossil fuels whenever we're around it. And so I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't try to uh, minimize the the pollution side, I would just focus on the upside. Um, but I think your point is valid where uh, dropping bad chemicals in the ocean is not the same thing as consuming nuclear energy. Right. right? And I, I think that is important where people think more energy consumed is bad. And I think we totally have to flip that on its head. More energy is good. Yes. Period. Yeah. I mean, just every... There's something, it's so fundamental, it's almost hard to put into words, but it's like everything that's moving is channeling energy. So if you want to move, if you want to be free in the world, right? maybe say energy harnessing or consumption is proportionate to our degrees of freedom. You know, because if you're just a caveman 
you can't, the only energy you can channel is kind of your bodily energy. You're not going to be flying around the world or having a nice cabin or, you know, uh, eating grass fed beef. I mean, maybe they eat some beef, but they're not going to have a cattle ranch and all this. So, um, yeah, we need a way to flip the script, I guess, in people's mind about energy, because it really seems to be one directional. Like there's this typical refrain against Bitcoin, like, oh, it uses so much energy. And that just seems like it's the, embedded in that phrase is like all this stuff about pollution and wastefulness and hurting the environment. It's just, it's a tough one to debunk. It is. And sadly, I, I don't think we're going to move the herd's understanding on this one. I think the reality is people are entrepreneurs are going to go to work mm -hmm. and the results are going to speak for themselves. And if the masses are incapable of coming to this level of nuance, which is my base case, then um, great. Then we just need the entrepreneurs and the Bitcoin miners and the communities that benefit mm -hmm. positively from this force to speak up. And hopefully that's enough to prevent any heavy handed regulation. Right. And specifically in the US, okay, the central government is very much on big climate or the ESG approach. And rather than go down that, I think the, the shining light here is that the US is a federalist based system. And so mm -hmm. we'll have California and New York demonize Bitcoin mining. You'll have Wyoming and Texas raise their hand. And I think that's okay. Right. I think that's enough for uh, Bitcoin to be sufficiently decentralized and for honestly, the miners to go where they're treated best. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a key point here is um, most people don't realize that kicking miners out of China means they leave a politically unstable home and those refugee miners find a long-term political home. Right. And what happens then? Okay, fine. They go to the US and they get tax incentives. The mayor is shaking hands and employing mm. people. And then what happens? Those miners aren't going anywhere. They're entrenched. And right. they just converted a local community into allies, right? There's an example of um, Compute North. It's a mining company in, in Minnesota where I live. And they have a facility in Kearney, Nebraska. And essentially, I think it was either Google or Amazon was going to put a data center there. Mm. And then at the last minute, Iowa offered a better deal and, and Kearney, Nebraska got rug pulled. <laughs> so they built this giant energy facility and there's no customers, right? Pretty small town. So... Compute North shows up, they build out this large facility and they're buying a tremendous amount of their energy uh, behind the meter, right? Before it even goes to the grid mm. and they're mining Bitcoin with it. Okay. What's the net effect of that? Net effect of that? Well, now they employ 12 people or something like that in Kearney, the energy production or the energy prices are, have declined for all the end consumers, mm. right? Cause the miner increases the economics and the city loves them. So if the federal government comes down on Kearney, Nebraska, you're going to have a lot of people saying, hey, you're going to raise our energy bill. Hey, you're going to fire our people. Hey, you're going to cause a lot of problems here. Knock it off. And I think that's really the only way we fight this. Um, at least that's how I feel. I hope I'm wrong. No, that's a great, great way to look at it because it's you're just this idea of bootstrapping economies or giving economies some skin in the game once Bitcoin's there, right? But people have enjoyed the benefits of Bitcoin mining being local to their economy. And it's hard. It's hard for governments, at least in the Western world, to take away things from people that people really like. You know, we saw the Uber example has been beaten to death on this, but it's like you give people this more efficient system of ride sharing and transportation, and it gets, despite the regulatory resistance, 
it, it tends to overcome because you get this democratic effect of people just using what's best for them. And that sort of pushes up onto policy. Yeah, great. I think the Uber analogy is honestly a great point, right? It Bitcoin miners do make, they, they are symbiotic with energy producers. Mm -hmm. It is a, a net benefit. And as of today, uh, Bitcoin miners are entirely unique. There mm -hmm. is no other energy buyer that has this bouquet of traits. Mm -hmm. And so back to ecology, it's a novel market entrance point, small little change, little disturbance. And I'm predicting gigantic outsized effects for this. Hmm. Um, let, let's jump into this a little bit. Like sim, uh, unique traits. Okay. Number one, co-location, meaning Bitcoin miners go directly to the energy source. Um, that's profound because traditionally, um, wherever the energy is being produced, you don't necessarily have the demand next door. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, you have to build very expensive high voltage transmission lines and move the energy miles away, which takes years and a lot of capital just to deliver your energy. Rather, Bitcoin miners show up on site. They're mining pretty quickly. Um, next one, interruptible load demand, meaning, okay, you have a, let's say you have a steady production, but your, or yeah, steady supply of energy, but your demand fluctuates, mm -hmm. right? During the day, demand goes down. Everybody's at work from like five to nine, five to 10, demand skyrockets. Everyone's at home cooking, watching TV. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the Bitcoin miners, they're buying all that excess energy during the day. And it, let's say there's a period where energy is constrained and the consumer needs it. Great. Bitcoin miners turn off, right? So they're interruptible load demand or flexible load demand. Um, and what's the next one? High mobility. So they can mm -hmm. very quickly move on to the next spot. So as if, let's say, Kearney, Nebraska, right? They have excess energy today. Bitcoin miners buy most of it. What if Kearney, Nebraska triples its size and, and it brings in all this manufacturing to take advantage of that energy? Well, Bitcoin miners get priced out. And so if it was a aluminum smelting plant, which is the historical use for excess energy, um, that's a lot of wasted capital because you can't just pick up an aluminum smelting factory and move it. Whereas the Bitcoin miners, you just put them in a truck and put them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so those are the three main traits. What, what's the effect of this? Well, miners improve the economics of the energy producers. They provide jobs and they increase grid resilience. Right? Bitcoin essentially monetizes energy that no one else would buy. And over the long term, it's my belief that the energy utilities or energy producers who partner with Bitcoin are actually going to outcompete the energy utilities who don't. Right. Right. Because they have better economics. And if they start putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet, that could cascade. Um, in exchange, Bitcoin miners get the cheap energy, right? They're seeking cheap energy for higher profits. And they gain the, the powerful local allies, the local governments and people like we just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they're the buyer of first resort. So that's that net new energy asset where nobody's there to buy it. That's the pioneer species, which we'll get into. And then the, the buyer of last resort, which is we, we produced excess and no one will buy it. So here comes Bitcoin miners. And so my essay is essentially building on the Bitcoin buyer, uh, the buyer of first resort, or sorry, the buyer, uh, yeah, the buyer of first resort. So a net new energy asset, that's the pioneer species. Um, yeah, I'd probably stop there. So yeah, that so the first resort you're describing is this where we get into the bootstrapping of a local economy, right? Whether you're, I think the example you gave offline was like trying to build a dam, but it's not going to be producing electricity until a certain point, and you can you can mine Bitcoin in the interim to help finance that project. Is that how that works? 
Yeah, let's break it down. So the second, that was the first order effects. Second mm -hmm. order effects, there's two of them. One is making existing energy assets more efficient. That's like plugging into flare gas or stabilizing a mm -hmm. grid with, with renewables. A lot of people are talking about that. Um, the second one I'm trying to underline here is investing into net, making it more economical to invest in net new energy assets. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, for the for the river example, you have a river. Okay, great. We can build a hydro facility there in this remote mountainous region. Now we have low cost green energy. However, not a lot of people live in remote mountainous regions. Mm -hmm. And so you're producing energy right away. And so, okay, what would you do? Well, let's say there's a city nearby. Great. You're going to spend a few years building those high transmission, high voltage transmission lines. And it might take you two, three years after you build the energy facility before your, your source of demand is even online. Mm. And in that interim, what happens? You're just burning money. Mm -hmm. um, alternatively, you plug in Bitcoin miners and they're, they're happy to buy every single watt you produce right. um, at a fair price, right? And it's mm -hmm. marginal revenue for the, the producer and the Bitcoin miners are more than happy to take it off their hands. Um, so it essentially decreases cost of capital to invest in energy assets, right? Increases the ROI of energy assets. And that's going to create all kinds of things, right? Speaking of bootstrapping an economy. Yeah, no, that's incredible. So the, the idea of Bitcoin mining, basically decreasing the average cost of capital for some of these large projects. Um, the other thing that's really interesting to me here is that your distribution costs effectively go to zero because the Bitcoin mining is just on-premise, right? Whereas instead of needing to build this huge infrastructure to distribute the power out and sell it to demand or, or get it to demand to sell it, you literally just drop the container right there, right? Whatever the box or trailer, whatever the, the modular setup is. And there's no, there's no distribution because the energy is consumed right there. It's consumed right there in the process of Bitcoin mining. And then it's converted into this hyper-portable unstoppable money, which has a ton of advantages in and of itself. Um, exactly. and it's, it's, it's logical, by the way, if energy producers that add Bitcoin mining are just going to generate more revenue flat out. So of course, they're going to outcompete those that do not. And so you can only imagine the network effect behind that. Exactly. Then you get into the question of is energy production and Bitcoin mining going to merge? Mm -hmm. Right. Are we going to have fully vertically integrated stacks here where energy producers also, okay, what about like Intel in the US? This is speculation. Intel is going to make a chip, right? Um, okay. If that happens, now they're into building ASICs. Why, why don't they buy some nuclear plants? Why don't they mine, mine energy or mine Bitcoin with their own hardware on their own energy facilities? while attracting these startup cities, right? Wow. Yeah. It starts to get really wacky if we master energy and, and we're also able to spread out, which we should probably save that for later. But there, again, the incentives <laughs> go, go really weird places. Yeah. And then the, the other piece of that is you layer on some financial services on top of that. So you're like energy producer, meet Bitcoin miner, meet bank, like all all in one. There's something really profound about the direct monetization of energy that transforms these traditional divisions we have between industries. Like it almost pulls them into one, um, at least to some extent.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, why don't we explain the pioneer species, the actual analogy mm, yeah. um, to paint, paint the picture? So the pioneer species is a unique species in biology. There's many different types, but it performs a specific role in our ecosystems. And so the famous example is a, uh, an island off of Iceland, a volcanic island erupts. And that eruption essentially kills all life on the island. So it's just a, it's just a desolate rock. And then the question is, is it destined to be a desolate rock forever? Uh, and the answer is no. There is unique species that are designed to come colonize that inhospitable landscape. And so these are usually hardy plants and or lichens, which is a fungus plant symbiosis, and they don't really need soil. And so these things either get dropped in a bird, bird poops with the seed and drops in, into this place, or maybe it washes in shore or goes in the wind, something like that. So it just gets lucky and lands on a desolate landscape. Okay, then this new species, so the pioneer species, enjoys competition-free environment. They produce their own food through photosynthesis. And if they're successful, they essentially bootstrap an entire new ecosystem from a desolate rock. And so think they, they turn igneous volcanic rock into soil. Now you have a little bit of soil. So now you can have these really hardy plants that kind of like wedge themselves in the cracks. And then fast forward another few decades, now you have these mature forests, mature ecosystems, um, and they were only possible due to the pioneer species and then the intermediate species, right? It's a process of succession. And then at the end of this process in the mature ecosystem, actually the pioneer species are no longer able to compete in a resource rich environment. So they get kicked out and they hopefully reproduce and colonize a new barren rock somewhere else. And so you can think of them like little, uh, their goal is just to reboot ecosystems after a forest fire, after a landslide, after a volcanic thing, after a meteor, um, they're very, very crucial. And now obviously the parallel here, which is probably obvious is Bitcoin miners are the pioneer species. They go find unused energy assets around the world and they help bootstrap an energy asset wherever it is. And okay, now you're producing energy at a, at a low cost. That's going to attract industrial use cases. There's always a use for more energy. So someone's going to come buy it. Okay, great. Now you have an industry boom town. Well, if you have manufacturing jobs, you need labor, you need people there. You also need services to make the people happy, mm. uh, right? It's getting more complex. And over time, now you have a fully flourishing human oasis. Mm -hmm. And again, fertile conditions, Bitcoin miners can't compete, right? Because end user consumers will always pay more per for energy relative mm -hmm. to Bitcoin miners. So the mm -hmm. Bitcoin miners get priced out and hopefully they get, remember they're mobile, they're going to go find a new energy asset to bootstrap and the process mm -hmm. continues. Wow. That's, that's crazy to think about it that way. Um, let me ask you this. Are, what are the qualitative differences between the pioneer species versus getting into the intermediate and climax species? Are they, I assume the pioneer species is much more hardy or, or tough because it's living in a really rough environment, whereas maybe the climax species is just less so? Yeah, that, that's a big one. What, what is drought tolerant? Right. So think, think of very hardy species. They don't need a lot of water. And the classic example is a lichen. And a lichen is a symbiosis of at least two organisms, a plant and a fungi. Mm. And the plant is just solar panels, right? They're producing food from the sun's energy. 
And then the fungus is a one cell wall series of tubes, right? This like mm. little underground roots, you can say, and they use chemistry to digest their environment externally. So they use chemistry to turn that igneous rock into its base elements, right? Essentially mining minerals wow. and it's digging little tunnels to liberate phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium, et cetera, um, which the plant also needs, right? In exchange for an anchor, right? The roots keep the, the photosynthesizing plants attached to this rock mm. and, you know, they kind of trade resources and over time it converts the rock into soil and a little bit, let's say giant trees, they could never live in this environment. They need rich soils with complex microbiology and all these mm. other things. And they essentially will shade out this like sort of scraggly little thing that's mm. like flat on the rock. And so eventually they just don't have a chance, right? Intermediate species would be like a, a little shrubby bush thing that's not very impressive by plant standards. Um, but again, it continues that process of converting rock to soil in more complex ways. So cool. So there, I, I just am I'm imagining some type of parallel here where we, for human civilization in a way, right? Like initially to have any form of human civilization in the beginning it had to be very hardy. You can't, you had to build your walls and have your weapons and all that. But as we've, as we've become more wealthy and more sophisticated as a society, uh, we now have a lot more wealth and diversity and, and all of these things, but it's, but those new models of civilization obviously priced out or, or outcompeted the older ones. So there seems to be this very interesting progression, progression with, um, I mean, maybe we could quantify this as to like the, the density of exchange or the, or the intensity of exchange, perhaps, whereas those pioneer species aren't doing a lot. They're just kind of turning sun energy into this digesting of the rock. Whereas if you fast forward to a forest, like there's a lot more exchange occurring at a lot more levels. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think what most people don't understand is that a forest is not a bunch of trees next to each other. Mm. A forest is an insanely complex, back to how complex biology is. Mm. A forest is incalculably complex and we're just barely scratching the surface here. Um, I, I've done some, I had some conversations with an evolutionary biologist, Toby Kears, who mm. studies fungal economies. And she essentially looks underground and, and what she observes is that uh, plants and fungi have a complex economy. They trade resources, they perform economic calculations, they buy low, they sell high, they hoard resources and ship them over to where they're scarce so they can get a higher price. And they use each other, they compete, they, it looks like they lie, steat and chill to get, it, uh, to get ahead. And so the reality is, yes, we started with the pioneer species, which is like humans going westward mm. and just barely getting by. It's like dudes and pickaxes and then the brothels and the bars show up and then eventually it becomes a town and someone sells them jeans or whatever. And then it can become San Francisco where instead of like uh, this renegade, you know, steel and steel and like kind of lawless town, it becomes a town where we trade instead of battle or trade mm. instead of uh, suffer in that same way. And exactly the same on the pioneer species uh, analogy, right? The complex system, they trade It's one plus one equals three. And it's a cascading effect because they all fit into the ecosystem. So interesting that relationship between just how much exchange is occurring 
and how much wealth is being produced. You know, uh, wealth in the economic sense, but also just wealth in the, I guess, the sense of biomass in the forest, right? There's just, it's bootstrapping the intensity of exchange, which is just creating more, I guess, ultimately, the, the forest is harnessing a lot more energy, just like we said about civilization, right? The forest is harnessing and channeling a ton more energy than the pioneered landscape in the same way the wild, wild west is using way less energy than San Francisco today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all okay. back to energy. Yeah. Um, and so from this angle, um, I guess just one more detour on ecology to your previous point. Um, it's all about energy, right? So the primary producers, uh, okay, ecology creates a pyramid. At the mm -hmm. base of the pyramid are plants. Plants harness energy from the sun. Mm -hmm. So you need a lot of plants because um, that's harnessing a lot of base energy. More plants equals, okay, now you have the ability to have herbivores. Mm -hmm. Now you have some creatures that eat the plants. Great. And you need a, quite a few of those in order to sustain predators mm -hmm. who eat the herbivores, right? And so you're, you can only, and then you have apex predators, the bald eagle, uh, the human, you know, very, the wolf, various other ones. And you can only have those apex predators if every stage below them in the pyramid is robust. Mm -hmm. And so we need that complex plant system, right? It's all energy constrained. And so you can look at a desert versus a jungle, a rainforest, mm -hmm. right? A desert has a lot of sun, but it doesn't have a lot of water. And so you can only have a limited amount of plants. And that is your baseline, right? A limited number of plants means you can't really have many animals. That's why you go to the desert and it sort of feels like it's not alive. Whereas yeah. you go to the jungle and you, there's infinite organisms nearby and you, you hear them constantly. They walk into your house. They're on your arm when you don't want them to. They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. It's yeah, it's just interesting. I, like a useful way to think about civilization because um, you can see the consequences of it directly in nature, right? It's like if there's not enough exchange occurring, then you're going to live in poverty, as you can see here in the desert. <laughs> Versus if we do figure out how to scale a lot of exchange, then you create a lot more wealth and a lot more, you support a lot more carrying capacity of life, as you described earlier, which is like more like the jungle. Yeah, exactly. And I think the, the framing I want people to take away is that uh, Bitcoin miners are citadel seeds, hmm. right? They just go plant little Bitcoin citadels that Okay, it's, it's unassuming today, but if we fast forward 10, 20, 50, 100 years, that's probably where, at least I'm predicting, that's where the next uh, centers of excellence will be, hmm. right? Like we had the industrial revolution, whoever had the, the most capital, most army, most machines on the world. Um, then we have like some new countries like Singapore or Hong Kong or something. They got to take the lessons of the, of the industrial revolution and sort of apply them to a modern sense. And if we look forward, um, I think these, these little mining citadels, these little bootstrapped ecosystems, I think those are going to attract the type of people um, that went westward, the pioneer type people. Mm -hmm. They're going to attract the ideologically aligned people um, to move out and necessarily spread out for the first time. And what's that going to do? You're going to have high production people living in density, and they're kind of like little startup cities. Yeah. And I think, I think in the future wealth, well, it already is, but increasingly so wealth is ideas. Wealth is intangible 
And so it's not actually better to have a bigger place, right? You need the natural resources you need, but wealth comes from uh, your brain. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a really dense, small community that's excruciatingly wealthy due to the the value of their ideas. Mm. And if Bitcoin mining solves the energy problem, which is most of what we need to survive, and then you can work online and spread your ideas, um, you know, these startup cities don't, don't necessarily need a government. Now, defense gets a little more complicated, but I can see this, right? If you squint hard enough, you can kind mm. of see a sovereign individual thesis being aided by these, these mining hubs. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just now, I think landing with me how <laughs> significant this is because you're describing, so civilization will start to flow towards these areas. Well, initially it's Bitcoin mining being drawn toward these areas of cheaper energy. But then that's sort of bootstrapping an economy there. So then populations actually start to flow ultimately towards these areas of cheaper energy. As population growth increases in these areas, though, then so does the demand for energy. So the price of energy goes up. And then Bitcoin mining kind of flows off to the next cheapest place. Right. So it really is going to cause us to spread out. I mean, especially if I guess the other assumption behind all this is just the digital age itself, like we can do most of our normal interactions remotely. So you don't know the, the density of the city, urban density that was so useful in the 20th century is less relevant in this new world. And if you combine that with this, this force of Bitcoin mining, really an incentive structure, I guess, that's spreading out populations. That's really interesting. We end up, you know, uh, covering the surface of the world to a much greater extent than we do currently with a city, um, you know, hyper dense city urban model. Exactly. Right. And what one point with to obviously analogies are not perfect, right? The map's not the territory. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the miners, all the miners won't leave, right? Mm -hmm. We go from a bootstrap city to a complex, um, city, um, the mi- most miners will leave, but there's always excess energy built yeah. into the grid. Right. Uh, just a tangent that people always miss is uh, we produce about three times as much energy as we consume. And some of that's because all energy is sort of siloed around the world. You have production and not necessarily enough uh, consumers nearby. And also you have to prepare for the hottest day or the coldest day of mm-hmm. the year. And right. so on May 10th, right? A perfect spring day. No one's heating their house. No one's cooling their house. In that situation, you're drawing only like 30% of what your capacity of energy is that day. But you need that capacity for January 15th when it's freezing and everybody's pumping their heat up. And so the point being, some miners will stay as an energy sponge to soak up all the excess. Um, Yeah, no, that's a great point too. Just talking about how much of the capacity... We build a capacity for the hottest or coldest day of the year, essentially. But then we live, you know, the, by definition, we live way within the, the bounds of that capacity. And there's all this excess capacity worldwide. I know it's particularly acute here in North America. One of the executives we talked to at a energy, uh, publicly traded energy industry I'm sorry, company said that the entire North American energy infrastructure was built for the hottest afternoon in August. So there's all this just unused capacity that can basically be used to mine Bitcoin. 
Exactly. And that never goes away. Yeah. Right. And so what we'll see is Bitcoin miners flocking to the energy gluts. And then what I predict is there'll be some sort of equilibrium point where at this level of production, let's say in West Texas, um, we don't necessarily need the marginal miner. The marginal mm-hmm. miner is going to be paying more and more and more for energy. So eventually you sort of hit a dynamic equilibrium mm-hmm. there. Um, and that sort of makes sense, right? Now, I, I, don't, I don't see a future where that won't be the case just due to the laws of physics and how energy exists. Mm-hmm. And so unless some other type of consumer that is similar to Bitcoin's um, consumer profile, you could say, mm-hmm. unless we see that come into the market, Bitcoin miners are going to be next to energy facilities forever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And I, I'm not, I don't want to say that with too much confidence because we probably will come up with other energy sources or energy demand. Yeah. But for now, Bitcoin's the, the, the main main show. Yeah. Well, yeah, to your point earlier, it's like it becomes energy buyer of first resort initially, but then it just kind of rolls down the heat to energy buyer of last resort. And that never goes away, right? There's always going to be some, some um, I guess, flex capacity or excess capacity that will be sold to those buyers. Exactly. And then one more frame here is there's new generation miners and there's old generation miners, mm-hmm. right? The new gen miners are extremely efficient, but also capital intense. Mm-hmm. The old gen miners are not efficient at all, but they're extremely cheap. Mm-hmm. And so what you'll see is the, the new gen miners, they'll go in there and they'll monetize uh, they'll be the pioneer species because mm-hmm. you have insane amounts of energy and the new miners, they have to be running 24 seven more or less to, mm-hmm. to make sense. Yep. And so they'll go see the, the energy investment and then they'll leave and they'll actually go and start a new energy asset, new pioneer species right. uh, situation. But then the old miners will come in and those things, you keep them going as long as you possibly can, right? They'll monetize any excess energy you have at any price because there's yeah. no capital costs there. No, that's interesting too, because even I, maybe depending on the hardware refresh cycle, it might be those new gen miners being the pioneer species. But by the time that economy gets bootstrapped, they're already older, you know? So there's newer, new <laughs> going to pioneer the, new, the next locations. Um, oh, that's true. They just yeah. retire in the place they started yeah. because of the depreciation cycle. I'm sure yeah, there's totally. a lot of wiggle room in there right where they're still moving around but um yeah and if if these asics are built with a long shelf life you end up with bitcoin mining probably being the biggest use of hardware definitely the biggest use of energy worldwide but probably the biggest hardware operation too yeah i wonder about that there's some controversy and it's not clear to me what the long-term game is i think Mm. where i what i think today is that it becomes a really boring business with small margins, similar to energy production today. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's true, then we'll probably like peak in our energy usage in the next, I don't know, 30 years. And then maybe we'll actually decline at, after that as the subsidy is worth less and we yeah. switch to fees, but it's too many unknowns to really be confident after that point. Yeah. Um, my conversation with Sailor, he described that he thought, it would flip from being energy intensive to capital intensive so that um, the energy bill would be a smaller component of the miners operation going forward, be more about the hardware, right? Getting the latest and greatest hardware. I see. So at that stage, 
yeah, a better machine, energy is abundant everywhere, or there's yeah. enough energy at a low cost to satisfy the needs of the network. So at that point, you're only competing against which machine is more efficient. Yeah, it's almost like a lot of the energy market arbitrage has been arbitraged away effectively. And then so you're now competing on hardware fundamentals, right? Like, I guess, dollars per hash or, or something to that effect. Mm, I could see that. Or whatever the yeah, number one metric of, of uh, ASICs is. I guess it's just hashes per, What what is there? The term is escaping me. Well, the yeah, new generation same. has more blank than the old generation. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what, what this thing that we were just talking about, about spreading out, I just call that the great spreading out. Mm -hmm. And I think that the interesting analogy is that humans used to be by rivers, right? River is transport, food, energy, yeah. wa water to drink, defense, it's everything. Then we urbanized a bit more industrial revolution. So that's the mega city. That's get people next to a factory to do a widget task. Um, and then, okay, now we have the information economy. And I think that's obviously where we're going. That's probably dominant today, but we still haven't really adapted our location or how we live really. We're starting to see like the rise of the digital nomad. We're, I think COVID accelerated Zoom meetings, work from home. You're seeing migration out of New York and California to like Texas, Cal um, Florida, Arizona, et cetera. And so they say, well, why would I need to live next to my, my office? I don't need to pay San Francisco rent, right? So all those forces are already happening. And now you have, okay, the world seems to be going through uh, a bit of some turmoil here. It's, I don't really like the direction of our central planners. And so again, that's pushing people to explore alternative paths. Mm -hmm. And then you finally layer on the fact that Bitcoin mining um, enables this bootstrapping of new cities. And I think the most uh, bullish case on this is actually small nuclear reactors, hmm. right? Gen four nuclear reactors. I don't think they're in any mass production scale, but they're in prototype phase. And what I've read is they're small enough to, to support about 200,000 people. Hmm. That's really small. And so theoretically we could put these things wherever we want and build these little startup cities and then, okay, fine. Again, attracting ideological people, they're self-sufficient. We're going to see a thousand experiments in government. And how do these new startup mm -hmm. cities decide to um, set, up, set up a government? And how do they relate to their environment? And uh, I think that experiment stage is the magic here because we're not really making new governments, right? right. The, the land's kind of already owned and there's not really any strong incentive to do so. And Usually the uprisings get squashed, but right. Bitcoin, I think, enables the ability for startup cities not to get squashed. You can't steal their money and they're probably going to be on average wealthy. And so there might be some way to like buy a chunk of land from an impoverished country and start over. If we have a thousand of these, that's probably what it's going to take to figure out a new way for humans to exist that doesn't require mega nation states with mega armies to, to lead us. And so you can say you, you instead of uh, you will own nothing and be happy, you will mine Bitcoin and be happy. <laughs> That's a great one. So yeah, this, I love this idea then that these Citadel seeds are driving entrepreneurial experimentation in governance itself, which is an area that's been sorely lacking that entrepreneurial impulse. Um, and then presumably too, 
the the ones that work best will just become emulated, right? Th that will become the new model. So this will be, I don't know what you call it, nation state 2.0, network states is something Balaji called it. Um, because yeah, whichever one, whichever model of governance is creating the most economic output will just be forcibly adopted by others or they'll be outcompeted, just like the case of energy producers not adding Bitcoin mining. Exactly. It's just free market principles injected into governance yes. in, in a place where you could say, you know, kind of an abstract way, there's a monopoly on land today. Yeah. So there's a monopoly on these experiments. And I think to tie into Balaji's points, he, he thinks that these, these network like pre uh, land acquisition, pre gen four nuclear reactor, pre colonization of these new areas, we're going to have uh, network states or whatever online communities essentially mm -hmm. who share values, mm -hmm. they form hierarchies, they pool resources, and then you actually move physically. Yeah. And I think that makes the most sense, right? We just sort of atomize the state and then we re physical, we re, we relocate. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's a network of these, right? To your point, we figure out the best model. And then instead of one, there's 20 that form a, a trade network. Mm -hmm. And membership in one city gives you membership in another city right. or something like that. Yeah. Be like the, the Soho House of Citadels or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think it's it's fun to think about, but I also think it's in a way, at least from my perspective, it's approaching existential. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by this is I think these citadels have a duty for our species, which is that it appears that the central planning uh, apparatus, the megastate, is increase, in, increasingly encroaching and trying to create some new form of state similar to China's social credit mm -hmm. model. Like we essentially automate government and all the function of it with software. And so then we can just use social credit scores to manage the population instead of old models. And if that's true, um, I don't really wanna live in that world myself. And I know a lot of other people who don't, and it feels like that tide is, is moving fast. And so mm -hmm. I guess what I, what I see with these little citadels is, I think that they actually need to preserve the spark of freedom. I think that is their actual mm. duty here. It's to come up with a way that will eventually outcompete the Chinese social credit system. Um, and I think without this, this model, like I, I don't actually think Bitcoin uh, money is good enough. I think it is the second and third order effects that are, are catalyzed from this, this disturbance. And so I think, and I think it's also practical, right? That's my ideology. I want that mm -hmm. to be true. Other people may not. But I also think it's practical, right? People say, um, okay, China, very powerful. Are they going to outcompete the West and take over? Is their model superior? Mm -hmm. And I think that the answer is no, although it appears that they're, they're encroaching on the West or whatever. The reality is I think China is efficient. They mm -hmm. steal innovation and they implement it with a ruthless efficiency. Mm -hmm. But I don't think China or the Chinese model, to be more specific, is capable of producing the necessary innovation that humans need to thrive. Mm -hmm. And so I think innovation comes out of free places. Mm -hmm. And Matt Ridley, uh, one of my favorite authors, wrote a book, I think it was called Innovation. Mm -hmm. And he essentially said that freedom is required to produce innovation. And yep. innovation is required to produce prosperity. Yes. And so Bitcoin is actually upstream of freedom. 
Bitcoin enables an ecosystem to be free, enables individuals to pursue their own bent, their own path in life, which leads to value. So yeah. Bitcoin enables freedom. Freedom enables innovation. Innovation yeah. enables prosperity. Yeah. So I, I think the whole thing is absolutely mandatory, um, practically and ideologically. Ideologically. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So in that formula, I guess you could call it, what is the role? I mean, the state serves no role in any of that, but you do need to defend these little economic networks. So does this spreading out then I mean, I guess we get experimentation in different models of defense too, right? People are just going to sign up for these startup cities and they're going to get some a la carte version of defense, I suppose, for whatever tax dollars they're paying. Does that, I mean, that seems very appealing, but then I guess after my conversation with Blasio, what I'd be, what I'm worried about in that situation is a giant centralized state like China social credit score system with one and a half billion people, do, do they then become susceptible? These, these tiny micro economies or citadels, are they then vulnerable or susceptible to giant centralized China or other mega state? Yeah, I think that's an important question. And I think in the short term, the answer is definitely yes. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the natural incentive for people looking to create startup cities will go in places where they feel their geography is relatively safe. Right. Like I wouldn't build one of these in, uh, you know, one of the neighboring countries to China, Mm. but maybe I would in Latin America or something like that, which maybe has a little bit less influence. Um, But I think it's a real thing to consider. And I think that the goal here, at least my optimistic view here, is that hot war becomes relatively uh, arcane or archaic, I should say. Mm. People don't really go there anymore. Um, I think that's mostly true today. We're not going to see superpowers, I hope, blowing each other up, but we will see playing dirty in the economic games and trade networks and energy and natural resources hoarding and bottlenecks in the economy and China not giving us the things we need when we need them. I think that's more of the landscape that we're going to see war, right? As we move from a warlord into economics, into like a after we have nuclear bombs economics. Yeah. And I hope that restrains us. And if so, then we may see like a Jason Lowry-esque hash war, mm. right? Where 
economics become more important than uh, your geography. So why would China take over a city state if they can't get any money? They can squash ideology, I guess, but they're not getting any Bitcoin. Right. And and they don't really get like even if they were coming to commandeer the energy source itself, that's presumably not a profitable enterprise to like go to war to then get gain access to this energy source that you then have to compete in this low margin game of mining. So the carrot to warfare, even here, is still like way smaller than in the current world. I think so. Um, If not, yeah, it's very hard for me to game that out, but that's at least that's the vectors that I see trending. And Mm -hmm. from this vantage point, that's enough for me to be optimistic. and with regards to nuclear bombs and, you know, essentially asymmetric technology, I think that brings us to an interesting place as well, which is that we can't really um, redo the same mistakes. We can't repeat the same mistakes in history um, now that we have civilization or population ending tools, mm-hmm. right? Our, we're biologically uh, designed to be competitive and to um, seek out more for ourselves and our kin. And that drives evolution, that drives economics. Um, and that's okay, right? If we have a flint and, and rocks and, and fire, mm-hmm. but if we have nuclear bombs and a high school kid can engineer a virus, then we can't really allow those things to occur anymore if we want to sustain long-term. Mm-hmm. And so trying to figure out a way to channel that competition into something that uh, simulates war, I think that's ne- necessary. Is mm-hmm. it Bitcoin's proof of work? I hope so. Maybe uh, if it's not, I think that's actually what we need, right? People always theorize what the great filter is. Maybe it's that. Maybe hmm. it's channeling our biological drive into a war-like simulation yeah. um, that doesn't have the same consequence. Yeah, that's great. There's a. I just point the audience here. I've read a little bit about it, but it's excellent. It's uh, the American pragmatist William James. Uh, I guess it's in the 1800s, maybe late 1800s, he's writing about this, that humanity needed a moral equivalent of war if we were ever to like go to the next level because he just makes the point that war has been the most unifying force ever. Like you get two countries warring against one another, you've completely unified both popula- populations, even though they're in, even though they're antagonistic to one another. So you need that unifying force but ideally without all the violence destruction mayhem of war uh so maybe this is that you know that kind of gets into the lowry thesis of you know if we're going to have the future of warfare conducted by a bunch of drones why not put all those drones on racks and just let them do something productive exactly yeah you're competitive but by out hashing your neighbor you're actually increasing the total hash power right and so you, you improve the whole network for everyone by acting in your own best interests. And I, I think that's the allegory of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? It's channeling self-interest, which is innate to humans and good mm-hmm. luck getting rid of that and channeling that into a positive externality in the world. Yes. And I think we're just starting to uncover these positive externalities as Bitcoin grows, as it bumps into more people, as it changes more of the environment around it, because Bitcoin's not changing, right? And so I, I think, to be honest, um, we don't know much about what this thing's going to do. Yeah. Um, 
I think we're, we're way further along than we were, let's say in 2017. But I think it'd be arrogant, just like it's arrogant in biology to assume we understand the world around us. I think the same is with Bitcoin. I think it's on yeah. a, not quite the same order of magnitude, but Bitcoin interacts with something as complex as biology, right? So the second, third, fourth, nth order of effects are as complex as biology, thus hard to predict. Yes. Yeah. And the thing that, that springs out of me here is I've, I've hit this idea from a lot of different angles, but the idea of Bitcoin basically being a microcosm of capitalism itself or we could say, you know, capitalism is basically economic Darwinism, right? It's just survival of the fittest. Um, so this idea of having competition among humans, but within the bounds of private property, like warfare clearly just disgraces property, right? Destroys, destroys property, destroys people. It, it's awful. It's brutal. But if you can have this competition, that same, an outlet for those same competitive energies in a in an arena where property is uh, integral, I guess you could say, right? Like we're actually just competing with one another on a on a pure a game of pure wealth accumulation versus wealth destruction. That is just in it's in everyone's best interest, right? So like I tweeted this the other day. I thought it was real real witty. He said that Bitcoin's the best system in history we've yet devised for converting anyone's self interest into everyone's self interest. Like it just, it actually aligns all of us towards, um, I guess, making things better versus just blowing each other up. <laughs> Big mystery there. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you just poetically said Bitcoin converts greed into freedom money or Bitcoin creates incentives that lead to positive externalities. Yeah. That's the magic here, right? And coming back to complex systems, the central planning class wants to steer the ship. And they assume that by introducing a new policy, they're going to achieve a desired outcome, right? right? They assume order comes from policy. Order mm -hmm. comes from you steering the ship and planning with smart guys and committees. Right. But the failing here is that order actually emerges from systems without any central planning. That's, yeah. the, that's the, the fundamental error in the thinking. And if that was understood by central planners writ large, by Keynesian economic economists at large, I think we'd have a very different world today. And it comes back to humility, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. It's arrogant to assume we can understand the economy, just mm -hmm. like biology. And so mm -hmm. I don't know how to get that through to people because they're very <laughs> credentialed. And the more credentialed they are, the more arrogant they are about their position. 100%. And the, you know, this fatal deceit of policy being the only mechanism to create order. I almost have a little sympathy for that thought process because you're just sort of scaling it out, right? You're saying, oh, well, I, as an individual, I make plans and then I go into the world and execute. And that's how I create order in my life. If I didn't do that, if I didn't plan, I would just be, well, I don't know, an animal, I guess, just rolling around, but you can't, that doesn't, scale appropriately you can't just have then the society that decides and makes plans for everyone else it's like the responsibility needs to rest with the individual actor right otherwise you're breaking their you're breaking feedback loops or breaking their skin in the game to the point where you create um negative externalities which is the opposite of what bitcoin is doing Yes, exactly. And the quote that comes to mind for me always is the road to hell is paved with good intentions, 
right? I think in Bitcoin land, we very quickly demonize central banks and we demonize state state actors, et cetera. And I think by and large that they are acting out with good intentions. They believe mm-hmm. they're doing the right thing. They believe they're capable and they're trying. Um, yeah, they have their own pathologies mixed in there, but by and large, good intentions. And unfortunately, good intentions that produce poor outcomes, mm-hmm. um, as far as I'm concerned, your good intentions do not matter. You're acting evil and you're acting evil due to ignorance and that's your fault. Yeah. And so, yeah, like uh, Hayek had a quote, which frames this up nice, which is, we don't have an issue with problems. We have an issue with solutions, <laughs> right? We're just over-engineering everything. And Huxley, same deal. He, he Actually, this is a book you should read if you haven't. Um, Huxley obviously wrote Brave New World. And about 10 or 20 years later, he wrote Brave New World Revisited. Mm. This is a retrospective of his dystopia. And in the, the, the delta between the two books, uh, 1984 was written, mm-hmm. right? So he contrasts the two dystopian ways to control the world. And he also looks at encroaching uh, centralization and the risk of all these things. And he essentially warns us, it, it feels like it was written today. He's mm-hmm. warning us of the same things we're experiencing today. And he had this uh, framing that stuck with me, which is that the central planners, they view humans as insects, mm. right? It's just a parts to a whole, right? Not, not as autonomous. They're all just like bees. Uh, but the reality is that humans are more like wolves in a wolf pack. Mm. We, we cooperate because it's in our best interest. Mm-hmm. And one wolf is going to get destroyed by a pack of wolves. So we form packs of wolves mm-hmm. and that pack of wolf could be a, a kin group, a city state, a country, mm-hmm. uh, a religion, right? Mm-hmm. We, 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 that's how we operate. We are not mm-hmm. autonomous drones and you can't manage us that way, which is kind of what the data model of economics reduces down to. Yeah. Just it's so obvious. I don't know if you just evaluate your presuppositions, like what human have you ever met? That's an automaton. I mean, we, they don't exist, right? You, tr- if you try to push someone to do anything, you're almost inevitably going to create some unintended consequence. They're going to do something unpredictable. So like, if you can't do that with one person, what type of deceit and arrogance are you perpetrating to think you can do that on everyone or most people? Um, yeah, it just really it boggles the mind. Yeah, it really does. Um, let, let me uh, pitch you a couple more predictions on the mining synthesis before I know we're going to run out of time here soon. Um, so the first one is the great spreading out. Uh, we kind of covered that. That sovereign individual thesis meets Bitcoin mining, meets uh, network state, meets uh, back to the land homesteading, but high tech and uh, with cryptography right? And self-sovereignty base. Uh, the next one is that Bitcoin mining leads to energy abundance. Now uh, we touched on this a little bit in the beginning, but uh, it's essentially it now that there is a price for energy anywhere in the world that never existed before, that incentivizes people to figure out how to capture new forms of energy in new places with more efficiency because efficiency equals profit. Mm-hmm. Right. So it teaches us how to be better with our existing tools and also to create new tools to harness energy. And similar to how um, demand for, okay, back to the internet, right? Once streaming became popular, 
um, people wanted streaming, obviously a good product. However, the internet was so crappy at the time that you really couldn't do it, right? Netflix started by mailing us CDs because streaming mm -hmm. wasn't ready. Um, now we have a demand for streaming, which led to an increased investment in internet infrastructure, right? So the demand for energy caused by Bitcoin is going to lead to an increase in supply of Bitcoin mm -hmm. because we're going to invest more into it. And so that over a long enough time frame is essentially the discipline humans need or the incentive humans need to be better at energy. And mm. back to the beginning, energy is upstream of all the good things. Right. And so that's going to be massive. And as our energy constraints decline, right, there's our H2O desalination plants, increased food, space travel, terraform mm. Mars, all kinds of futuristic stuff. We essentially um, get rid of all poverty and we raise the standard of living up to some sort of an acceptable average, right? Energy can do that. Mm -hmm. And above and beyond uh, a family, a chance to a chance out in the world, basic needs met. That's, that's a good goal. I don't think there's much more to reach for there. Yeah. Well said. And maybe a uh, admittedly simplistic way I've thought about this. It's like, when you look at history, whatever humans monetize, they just produce more of because that there's a huge incentive to create money, obviously. Um, you know, we monetize gold. Well, today gold has a $10 trillion market cap. Eight trillion of that, give or take, is monetary demand for gold. It's gold that would not have been produced if gold was not money, right? So we literally pull gold out of the ground to go and stick it in a vault somewhere else in the ground. Like that's the monetary demand for gold. So you could say if 2 trillion is industrial use, 8 um, trillion of gold's market cap is monetary use, then by monetizing gold, we've effectively produced 5x more gold than we otherwise would have. Okay, then you look at something like fiat currency, which is effectively monetized debt. <laughs> What's happened with debt? Well, we've produced a shitload of it. We have 350% global debt to GDP. And so when you evaluate Bitcoin through that lens, it's like, okay, now we're monetizing energy, this primary input to all economic processes, which means we're going to produce a lot more of it. And if you produce a lot more of something, you tend to find ways to do it cheaper, better, faster. So um, yeah, it's just a really big deal. It is a big deal. And kind of a funny uh, connection point here is that you're right, right? Whatever we value increases in supply because we figure out how to make it. Except for, or I guess because of that, that's why we need to be really specific about what we choose as our money, mm -hmm. right? The hardness of producing the money or Zabo's yes. unforgeable costliness, yes, which essentially means it's expensive to make and once you make it, it's very cheap to verify that what you made actually is what you said it is, mm -hmm. right? Those two tension points are what allow us to use commodity money as gold, or I guess why we chose gold mm -hmm. due to unforgeable costliness. And Bitcoin takes that same idea and obviously makes it the single hardest commodity to produce, yeah. um, thermodynamically verifiable that it was produced. Um, right. If glass beads were money, we know how that story ends. You're going to yeah. go manufacture glass beads. You wrote a nice essay about that. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it makes all the sense in the world. Once you understand what's going on here, like you need to understand money, how it evolves and you need to understand the importance of energy. 
but Bitcoin is just really, it's combined these things in such a mind blowing tool that none of us, despite our hundreds of hours of talking about it, have managed to get our head around it. Exactly. Uh, that, that's the allure, at least in my perspective, right? If I master something or close to master something, I sort of lose interest, mm-hmm. right? As soon as I hit diminishing returns, I'm on to something else. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bitcoin seems to actually, it's like my reading list. The more I read, the longer my reading list gets. Yeah. The more countries I travel to, the more I learn about new countries and cities that I, my actual, my travel list gets longer as well. Yeah. Um, I think Bitcoin's the same, right? It, it fractals into all these other disciplines because money is not just on an island, yeah. right? It, it, it touches everything. Yeah. And Bitcoin has embedded political ideology, right? It's not political, but it has embedded politics and mm-hmm. that those are attractive to me. Right. And I think they're also good for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. It's wild <laughs> stuff. Yeah. That is a heck of a ride. That's for sure. All right. Well, let's uh, let's put a button on it here and then we'll have you back um, to further this discussion, just in case my audience doesn't know where can they find out more about you or your work? Yeah, definitely. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate the chat mm-hmm. as always. Um, the best place is Twitter. That's where I'm testing ideas, shooting from the hip, and also produce some threads every now and then. The handle is bquitem, B-Q-U-I-T-T-E-M. I publish all my writing at brandonquitem.com, my name. And then this recent essay is only on Medium for now. Uh, I published it under the Bitcoin Times, which is Alex Fedsky's uh, curated publication. So just go to my Twitter. It's the pinned tweet. You'll see a thread summarizing a lot of the material we covered and a link to that essay, uh, which goes a lot deeper and, and broader than we covered today. Awesome. Brandon, this has been a blast and I'll see you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Robert. Hey guys, I hope you found this episode valuable. At the What Is Money Show, we are striving to deliver the most valuable knowledge possible in each and every episode. However, as Aristotle said, the purpose of knowledge is action, not knowledge. So I hope you're deriving some useful knowledge from the show, and I hope it's improving the actions you are taking in your life. Speaking of action, if you want to dive deeper into the big ideas explored in this show, please sign up for my newsletter titled The Freedom Analex at breedlove22.substack.com. Also, have you bought your tickets for Bitcoin 2022 in Miami yet? If not, it's your lucky day as I am giving away 10 million sats, which is roughly 4,000 US dollars to one lucky person who buys a conference ticket through my affiliate link. My affiliate link can be found on my Twitter profile at breedlove22, um, which also has a link. My Twitter profile has a link to my link tree, which you can also visit my link tree directly for links to all my work, including Bitcoin 2022 affiliate cells. My link tree is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e backslash breedlove22. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys watching the show. I hope you're finding some valuable knowledge in the What Is Money show, and I'll see you back here again next time.